Yes. You know, in a seamless and perfect world, that's how it was supposed to go. But we don't live in a perfect world, do we? We live in a very broken world and a lot of challenges in our hearts and lives. Friends, freedom is here. Freedom from sin is here. Freedom from shame is here. Freedom from self and selfishness is here. Freedom from smugness is here. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who sets us free from all these things for his glory and the enablement of us to reach out in love towards others. Freedom is here. And as I mentioned, we are going to be doing this series together beginning today, actually going all the way through this summer up until back to church Sunday in September. So we're going to start this uh, expository walk through the book of Galatians. And I've entitled our series out of the book of Galatians, Freedom. Freedom in Christ to love others. So since we're going to be using this book and its text throughout our time together, perhaps now would be a good time to get used to turning there together. So please, if you have your Bibles, do open them up to the book of Galatians this morning. If you have an iPad or a a smartphone, put an app on it, a Bible app, and use that if you would like. If you're not in the habit of bringing your Bibles, I do ask that you do bring them because we are going to be walking our way through the text together. Freedom is here, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so here we have the book of Galatians before us. Merely six chapters. About 149 verses. And if you were to read it at a casual pace, it would take you about 20 minutes. It's not a really, really big book. But in a very real way, this little letter written by the Apostle Paul is is very powerful and very potent. And in a very real way, this letter is the Magna Carta of Christianity. This is the Emancipation Proclamation for the Church. Let me explain to you how this little letter has worked in the history of the church. Just a couple of episodes, a couple of incidents, and then I want to draw to our own lives. This little book was responsible, if you will, for setting Christianity free from Judaism. Now, Paul didn't only write this book to set believers free from the law, but he also wrote it in a very real way to separate Christianity from Judaism. Christianity, as it began, was virtually all Jewish. There were all Jewish believers who had come out of the Mosaic Law. And if, if, if things didn't change, it was very likely that Christianity would have been merely another subset within greater Judaism. You know, just like there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and and the Zealots, all of which had a unique interpretation on, on the scriptures. In a very real way, the way, as it was known in those days, could have been just another subset within Judaism and had no real impact or, 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 or in, uh, influence in the world. But along comes the Apostle Paul. And he writes this powerful, potent little letter. And as we make our way through it, you're going to notice he uses some very strong language. And he's basically saying, no, no, we are not just another part of Judaism. We're not just a subset of what has already been. The church, because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, because of the resurrection from the dead, and because of the giving of the Holy Spirit into the lives of his people, we're radically new. This was a mystery, and this is totally new. And so do not put it under the confines of Judaism. And that is where this book comes in, in a very real way. Galatians says, no, the church is not Judaism 2.0. It's not a Mosaic Law upgrade. This is radically new through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what that means is this. You should be saying, thank you, Paul, this morning. You should be saying, thank you, Paul, this morning. Because if it were not for this little letter, in the power of it, in the influence that it had in the first century... You and I today would not be sitting at Grace Brethren Church. We would probably be sitting here today at Torah, the opposite of Grace's law, Torah, Torah Community Synagogue. Yeah, in a very real way, that's where we would be today. And that means this for you ladies, uh, that means that if we had a balcony, then we would kick you upstairs and all the men would sit down. 
But since we don't have a balcony, and if this were a synagogue, a conservative synagogue, uh, we would have to put a wall right down through the middle, fairly high, and all the ladies would have to sit on one side, and all the men would have to sit on the other. Because everybody knows that when men pray, if they can see a woman, they're distracted. Isn't that right, men? That's how that works. And so in Judaism, conservative place, the women are separated from the men. So ladies today, if you enjoy sitting alongside your, your husband or your loved one who happens to be male, say thank you, Paul. Oh, not many people are happy to be sitting alongside their loved ones. That's not so good. I bet I'll get a better response out of the guys. You see, guys, if, if, the, if this letter had never really caught on and never really made any impact, never made any real difference, after we lead you through a study to embrace Jesus Christ with your life, we wouldn't sit down and talk with you about baptism. We would ask you how your health insurance is doing because you're now going to need to have a little minor operation called circumcision. Guys, say thank you, Paul. See, ladies, guys are really excited about that one. So in a very real way, this letter is a letter of liberation. This is a letter of freedom. This was designed to set Christianity free from the bounds of Judaism. And that's what it did in the first century. This is a potent little letter. It makes a huge difference as to how we live our lives today. Now, along about the 16th century, this little letter played another enormous role in the history of Christianity in that it set free the message of the gospel of God's grace from the confines of various traditions and rules and laws and all of that. Back in the 1600s, a man by the name of Martin Luther, a German uh, priest who later became a, a, a German reformer, It is said that Martin Luther took the book of Galatians, held it to his lips like a trumpet, and he trumpeted readily for the Reformation. So this book became very passionate and very burning in the 1600s as we try to, again, free the message of the gospel of grace from the confines of man-made laws. And in fact, this book became so personal and so intimate uh, to Martin Luther that it actually, he called it my epistle. Uh, He said he was so intimate with it that he had wedded to it, and he actually referred to it as My Catherine, which was his wife's name. So this little book became a cornerstone of the great Protestant Reformation, again, setting free Christianity and the message of the gospel of grace from the confines of laws and man-made rules. So in the first century, it set free Christianity from Judaism. In the 16th century, it set free the message of the gospel of grace from all kinds of rules and encumberment. And today, my prayer has been and will be throughout this summer that as we interact with this remarkable little book, that we would find true freedom, true freedom through the gospel of God's grace that will set us free, free to enjoy and revel in the love of our God. Free to be set free from not only our sin, but also our, sin, our, our, our selfishness to the point where we can now revel in sharing God's love with others. This is a book of freedom. In fact, I believe that the main verse or the key verse to the book of Galatians is actually found in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Notice what it says. For, what's the word? For what? For? For? Yes, I'm having a brave heart moment right now, yes. Freedom! I'm going to warn you, one of these days I'm liable to come out dressed up as kind of a savage and half of my face will be painted blue. You see, I learned something. I was in Williamsburg last year and we were buying my son a scarf. And so we were looking for the Walker Tartan. And so we were looking through all these books on Tartan and it turns out that the Walkers don't have a separate Tartan. It turns out that the Walker clan was actually assumed under a larger clan called the Wallace clan. And so there is William Wallace, and I happen to be William Walker. So there's a lot of coincidence here. So one of these days, I'm going to come out half-painted blue, and I'm going to scream, Freedom! All right, I'm just warning you. So for freedom, Christ has set us what? What? Yes, he set us free. We love freedom. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He's referring to the bondage of the Mosaic law. And so what he's saying is this. Christ has set us free. Grace sets us free. But we can't use this newfound freedom and and the beauty of Christ's finished work on the cross simply to live any way we want. I'm free. I've got grace. My sin's been forgiven. 
That means I can live any way I want. Hallelujah. Actually, Paul said in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, God forbid. Ume, no, no, no. You can't do that. That's not the point of your freedom. Your freedom is for a greater purpose. And as you drill down into the concept of freedom just a little bit here in Galatians chapter 5, notice what it says. 5 verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your what? Thank you. As an opportunity for the flesh, for your own selfish desires or use. But our freedom has a purpose. And that purpose is that we might serve one another in love. Notice this statement. For the whole law, all the Mosaic law, all 613 commands, including the Ten Commandments, all of that can be summed up in one verb. And that verb is love. Love. For the whole law is fulfilled in just one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, my friends, is what biblical salvation is. It sets us free from sin and shame so that we can be free to love others. Set free from our selfishness. In fact, there is not a kind of faith, a saving kind of faith, that does not include this. Notice what he goes on to say as we drill down a little deeper into the word love. In fact, he says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only a faith that is actively working itself out through love. 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 This is the message of the book of Galatians. We have been set free from sin and shame so that we might be set free from ourselves and our selfishness and our smugness so that we can actively love others. Thus the title, uh, Freedom in Christ to Love Others. So that is the background, or that is the point, the chief verse, the primary verse, I think, for this book. Now what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is use the remainder of our time this morning to kind of give you a little bit of background, a little bit of overview, a little bit of understanding for the context of the book of Galatians. And then next week we're going to hit the ground running, actually moving on and uh, doing our best to understand what Paul's argument is. But uh, today, let's just focus in on Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 together this morning. And from there we will go. So if you have your Bibles, do follow along as I read this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. To all the brothers uh, who and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And he says what? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you so much for sending your Son. The the joy that is ours, unspeakable joy, the love that is ours that just overwhelms us and should just flow out of us towards others, the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ and the freedom that is there in him. Help us to capture these truths of grace in our hearts and may it live it out through our lives, I pray. Today, speak into our worlds. Help us to understand a little better who you are and how you desire us to follow you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at this introductory portion. In a very real way, it is a greeting. A greeting. And so here, it is, if you will, if I could entitle the first five verses of chapter one, it would be this. Greetings from a big A apostle with a type A personality. This is the Apostle Paul communicating to a group of churches that he founded. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And he's being very direct with them about who he is and the authority he has to say what he is about to say. But as we look into this, let's kind of dissect this. Let's look at the man, the man who wrote this book. Let's look at the mission that he was on. This is actually the people to whom he was writing. Let's look at his message that he's trying to clarify in this book. 
And then looks, let's look at uh, the ultimate purpose or the, the reason why he does what he does. So let's begin with his name. The man who wrote this book is a man by the name of... A man by the name of... Paul, yeah. Uh, this word, Paul, is actually a Latin word. It is his Roman name. And it is actually, I believe, his Christian name. Let me explain. The Latin word Paul literally means small or humbled. And I can't think of a better way to describe this man after meeting Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Uh, Growing up in Tarshish, which is a small little city in southern Turkey, uh, uh, the man by the name of Saul was growing up. He had Jewish... Jewish roots, and he grew up to be a Pharisee. Ultimately, Saul of Tarshish came down into the city of Jerusalem, where he was an active learner at the feet of one of the best-known rabbis of that day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was such a brilliant man at interpreting law, the Torah, and he has many of his interpretations in the additional commentaries around the Torah, that it was said that when Gamaliel died, that wisdom died with him. This was a brilliant man. And Paul sat at his feet as his disciple, as his learner, and Paul desired to be great. And so he said it himself best. He goes, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. When it comes to the law, I'm I'm without fault. And he basically said this, I outstrip all my contemporaries. So this is the aggressive man, Saul of Tarshish. He is a Pharisee, and he's aggressive, and he wants to climb the ladder. He wants to be somebody. And so what he did was he decided he was going to be part of turning back this pernicious lie called Jesus dying and rising from the dead. These people of the way, followers of Jesus, he was going to stomp this out and purify Judaism. And so we find him holding the garbs for people who had Stephen stoned to death in Acts chapter 8. And we find him there consenting to that death. And we find him then asking for letters of the leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, where he understood this this thing called the way. These Jesus followers were starting to build a group. And so his goal was to go there and to arrest them, to cause them to recant. And if they didn't recant, he wasn't against having them put to death. He was very zealous. He was very anxious to climb the ranks and to be the Pharisee. Along the way to Damascus, it says this in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. Now, as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am who? Why are you persecuting me? Whoa. Ow. Riding along the way to Damascus, he's going to yet deal with more of these people who call themselves Jesus followers, part of that pernicious lie that Jesus died and rose again. And along the way, the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his donkey right onto his backside. And and there, laying on the ground, he had a theophany that led to an epiphany in his heart and life. It was in that moment this very proud man was humbled. It was in that moment that Saul became Paul, that this big man became a little man. He now realized who Jesus Christ was, and it radically transformed. Not only the fact that he got saved in that moment, that Jesus Christ he embraced with his heart and life, but I also, also understand this. In that very moment, when he had this epiphany, this, 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 this sighting of the theophany of Jesus Christ, when he heard his voice and Christ speak to him, in that moment, everything about Paul's worldview shattered. Everything he believed to be true was found to be false. Everything that he had embraced with his life and was running after a whole hog was discovered to be wrong. In that moment, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, blew up his world. In that moment, you see, in Judaism, in the day in which Paul lived, uh, there was a belief that they were rapidly at the end of time. That, by that, I'm meaning that the nation of Israel was waiting for Messiah to come. 
And when Messiah would come, he would become king and exalt the Jewish nation above all the pagan nations around them and that he would destroy the pagan nations. This was his thinking. I am purifying Judaism to get ready for the king to come so he will exalt the the Jewish nation and we will get rid of all these pagans. In that moment, he now realized, oh my God, I have been so wrong. He wasn't at the end of the time for uh, Israel. He was now in the very middle of the overarching plan of God to be worked out through time. And he was now at a place where he understood God's desire was not to destroy his enemies, but God came and died for his enemies. And God, rather than judging them, reached out in love to them through the cross. This changed everything about how he understood life. His entire worldview changed. Just like that. All in a minute. Wow. This was a watershed moment in Paul's life. By the way, uh, it was, it's very common in other parts of our world today for people when they come to a place in their lives where they embrace Jesus Christ to take on a Christian name. I discovered all over India that I kept meeting Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. How come everybody's called Thomas around here? Well, that's our Christian name. You see, when we came to Jesus, we took on that name. That's very common in many other parts of the world. They take on Christian names when they embrace Jesus Christ. There's a new person, so why not have a new name? Well, Paul, in a very real way, went from being Saul of Tarsus to be ultimately Paul the Apostle. Radical transformation of who he is. I guess in thinking about that, as I've thought this week in my own heart and life, Has my worldview been radically transformed by Jesus Christ? Is all the things my culture is telling me, that it's all about me, that you do all you can, get what you can, enjoy what you can, do what you want, that the rest of the world really doesn't matter because I live in this very fortunate country? Has my worldview been transformed by Jesus Christ to be his view of the world? This week, I've been thinking a lot about that. Jesus, do I see the world like you see the world? Jesus, do I see my enemies as you saw your enemies, willing to give your life for them in love? By the way, Paul was willing to kill those who were in opposition to him. Now he's ultimately going to give his life in carrying the message of the gospel of grace to the very people that didn't want him around. It radically changes everything. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. When he enters into a life and places his Holy Spirit within us, we will never be the same again. Amen? That's what it means to meet Jesus. That's what it means to embrace grace. That's what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. It radically changes everything. And so Paul here became, or Saul became Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so he, he uh, made him an apostle. Now, the word apostle uh, literally means uh, one who has been sent with a commission. One who has been sent with a commission. Now, when Jesus was on this earth, he had a number of followers, disciples. And so these disciples, out of them, Jesus earmarked 12 men to be apostles, remarkably unique gifting and calling of Christ to carry on his message and mission in the world. The 12 apostles are the 12 disciples. So they had this unique calling, personal designations by Jesus. And so Paul didn't live during that time. Jesus, he wasn't a follower of Jesus during Jesus' life on earth. And um, ultimately, Jesus had not called him during his days on earth to be an apostle. So in the minds of the enemies of Paul or those who didn't like the revelation or the new thinking that Paul was bringing into this thing called the church, they thought to, them, they thought to themselves, he's not one of the big A guys. He's not a big A apostle. He wasn't called directly by Jesus Christ. So he's just a little A apostle. He's a little sent guy. He was sent by the church in Antioch of, of uh, Syria. And so he's not sent by God, so why should we listen to him? Well, actually, he tries to recant that and deal with that right at the very beginning of his letter. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. 
Notice, who raised him from the dead. How did Paul know Jesus had been raised from the dead? Yeah. And so he had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, which is a qualification for a capital A apostle. And so he's saying, listen, I have every right. I am no less than those who you consider to be pillars, you know, Paul and, and, and I'm sorry, uh, Peter and John and James in Jerusalem. I'm no less than them because I've been directly commissioned by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so right at the outset, he's making it very clear, I have every right to say what I'm about to say, and I have divine revelation given to me specifically from Jesus Christ for you to hear. So actually in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's going to spend much of his time defending his apostleship, his calling from Christ to say what he has to say. Because a lot of the things Paul has to say were relatively new in that day and age. And so he needed to give proper authority to where that comes from. And so he is an apostle. He is not only Paul... He is also Paul the Apostle. You know, um, there are no big A apostles anymore, by the way. Uh, There were only a few men in the first century who were capable of having that unique designation. I suppose today we could have little A apostles. Those would be what we would call missionaries, those who were sent by churches, commissioned in the name of Jesus Christ. But, you know, we don't qualify really basically as apostles, big A or little A. But you know what we do qualify for? We qualify as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. You see, they were uniquely sent ones, but we have been left here in this world for a unique purpose, and that purpose is as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we are to carry on within our homes and our houses, and by extension, uh, our jobs, the kingdom of heaven's ministry here on earth, the ministry of reconciliation in and through our lives. So while we're not apostles... Big A or little A, I believe that we are ambassadors left here as representatives for the kingdom of God. Let me share with you a beautiful woman in a beautiful story about how I think that can work. Friends, meet a beautiful lady by the name of Ludmilla. Ludmilla. In my lifetime, I have experienced the rule of two totalitarian regimes. One was the German Nazis, and the second was the Russian Communists. The Word of God says 366 times, do not be afraid, do not fear. So we weren't afraid. After 40 years of communism here, the fact that many believers left the country, the Czech Republic has been called the most atheist place in Europe. It breaks my heart. My name is Ludmila Hararova. I'm 82 years old. I have seven grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. My husband went to heaven in 2002. The Lord Jesus told me, now he is my husband, and he wants to continue to use me. He wants me to be his representative, his ambassador. Next to the door of my house, there is a bronze sign that says, the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. I love that. My home is an extension of Christ's kingdom. It's a place where people can come and look for help if they're in trouble or have a need. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is the atmosphere I want here at the embassy. The visitors that I get, some of them have called ahead to let me know they're coming, and some just come. The ones that haven't called are usually the best ones, because I'm not prepared for them. 
Everything that happens is dependent on the Lord. Today, a dear friend came by. She's a widow, and her family really are struggling financially. Whenever people enter this house, I just lay everything else aside and spend time with them. I have learned to recognize the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and give him room to use me. The Holy Spirit likes to take control. Often I listen to myself and I'll say things I wouldn't even think about. There is no problem to deal with the issues people bring when they come here because the Holy Spirit is here. It's an honor for me to be an instrument of God's love and his wisdom every day. We often don't realize that all believers are called to be representatives of the kingdom of heaven. We are all ambassadors. The Lord Jesus didn't choose to do it any other way. He simply entrusted us. I'm going to get me one of them plaques. I like how she refers to her house, the embassy. Isn't that good? That is so good. You know, the Apostle Paul was given the responsibility of being an apostle, a uniquely sent one by Jesus Christ. And I don't know that many of us are going to be sent elsewhere, but we are called to live where we are in the name of Christ for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's unique calling led him to be a part of this thing called the founding of churches. Uh, he was a, a, a pioneer missionary, and so he, he went to this area of Galatia. And this is the folks to whom he is writing this letter to the Galatians. It is a grouping of churches in southern Turkey uh, that is this unique gathering, uh, if you will, that he's writing to. And so I'd like to just give you a quick overview of a few, uh, a few unique things uh, concerning this founding of these churches, and then we will move on. So uh, this uh, actually is found in Acts chapters 13 and 14. It is Paul's first missionary journey. And so basically what happened is this. In Acts chapter 13, uh, it says this in verse 4. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, this is Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, sent out of the church of Antioch of Syria, they went on down to the city of Seleucia, a port city, and from there it says that they sailed over to this small island called Cyprus. And they docked at this place called Salmis. Now it says this, they proclaimed the word of, the, of, the word of God there in the synagogue of the Jews. That little statement is actually an understanding for us of the modus operandi that Paul would use on this first missionary journey. This was his strategy. What he would do is he would walk into various towns and cities that we see up here on the map, and the first thing he would do is he would look up where the local synagogue was. After all, he was a rabbi and he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees prior to meeting Jesus. So he could use this position that he had so attained for the sake of Jesus. So he would walk into these synagogues on the Sabbath, Saturday, and he would meet people and then he would sit. And, you know, the local folks there would be having their, their, their meeting. They would read the Torah scroll and they would acknowledge this dignitary who had come from uh, Syria and actually originally from Jerusalem. Oh, Paul! Do come on up and give a word to the brothers and sisters. And of course, Paul, being a very shy man, would say, well, no, no, I couldn't do that, right? Oh, my goodness. Talk about sick him to a bulldog. 
yeah, I'll give them a word. And so Paul would step up behind the Torah scroll and he would say this. Have you ever heard of Messiah? Yeah, yeah, we've heard of Messiah. We're waiting for his to come. I'm here to tell you he's come. His name is Jesus Christ. He didn't come the way we thought he would come. He came to die for our sin and to rise again. And today, with open arms, he will embrace all who will come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, without any adherence to the law. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh! Because in any given assembly, there were two kinds of people present. There were those who had been born and raised in the Jewish faith, And then there would be those people who were Gentiles. Uh, They were basically called God-fearers in that, that they were present. They had been drawn to Judaism, the uniqueness of the religion, because of its monotheism. They lived in a very polytheistic age. And so monotheism, one God, was very attractive to people. And also the morality that these people had. It was a very strong moral group of people in a very uh, immoral world. So a lot of folks were drawn to Judaism. But one of the requirements of Judaism was you must be circumcised as an evidence of the covenant. So a lot of folks were sitting on the outside looking in saying, I love all of this except for that part. So along comes Paul. Guess what? You can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be right with God without the law. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people there were saying, Woohoo! I want what you're telling me. And so what Paul basically did is he would walk in and he would split synagogues. There were a number of God-fearers who would say, I want what you're saying. And a number of the devout Jews would do the same. And all of a sudden, the Jews who would invite him to stand up and speak were upset. What are you doing? You're taking our people away. And so Paul would take these people, cluster them together, and begin local assemblies. And so this was Paul's habit. Does that seem inappropriate to you? Who are we to say? So he goes in, and he does that here in in Salmis. And then it says he moved on through the island uh, to the area of Paphos. And there's a unique story there. I want to encourage you, if you want to get some backstory to the book of Galatians, to read chapters 13 and 14. But there in that city, uh, there was a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus, who was a magician that Paul confronted. Awesome story. I'll just whet your appetite with that one. But uh, so they left there, and they sailed on up here to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, this is a low-lying area right here on the coast. And it's actually a semi-tropical zone. I say that because some people have surmised that Paul and his party, while they were there, at least Paul, had contracted malaria while he was there. And there's a very good chance that could be the case because when Paul wrote to the church in Galatians, the Galatian churches, he made this statement in chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel from God. Now, the reason why people think that it could have been malaria that he picked up here is because one of the only treatments that people knew in those days for malaria was to move to the mountaintops, to get mountain air, to get away from the coast. And so it appears that maybe they made a decision based upon the illness to move 90 miles to the north up here rather than going here or here. And so they went up to Antioch and Pisidia, which, by the way, is 3,600 feet above where they were. I don't know if that's true or not. People have surmised this. It could be. But if it is true, that means as the Apostle Paul was here, wondering the direction of God next, wondering where God wanted him to move next in his will, an illness beset him. And we can look at those things as like, what are you doing, God? This doesn't make any sense, Lord. And yet, could it be that that illness was the very thing that directed him to exactly the place that God wanted him to minister? I say that because how often do hardships come into our worlds, into our lives? Why is that person doing that to me? Why is this happening? Why do I have this illness? Could it not be that God is actually using our circumstances to direct us into his will for our lives. Just putting that out there, it could be. And so he goes from here up to Antioch and Pisidia. Now notice, Antioch and Pisidia and Antioch and Syria. This is where he started from. The church sent him, and he's now in this area. Let me just read a few words here uh, about his his time there, because again, it picks up on his modus operandi. And so um, it says, on the Sabbath day, Saturday, they went into the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, and they sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, 
say it. So he stood up and motioned with his hand, and he proclaimed Jesus. Jesus had come. He had died. He had risen again. And he is here to receive all who will come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, without the law. In fact, he actually says that explicitly. He goes on to say this in verse 38 of chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that although this, through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed, let go, given liberty from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And it says this, after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And he spoke with them and he urged them to continue in the grace of God. It's working. It's working. His plan seems almost a little underhanded. His plan seems almost a little strange. But he was going into these synagogues. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ. He was calling out a group of people who had placed faith in Jesus Christ. And those who didn't weren't happy. Not happy, Bob not happy because he had stepped into their terrain and he was splitting their churches and he was taking their people and they worked really hard to get these converts and so the jews became incensed against paul and barnabas and john uh, actually john mark left them shortly after they arrived there in pamphylia but so they were incensed and so literally they were driven out of antioch of the city they were they were they were forced to basically flee uh, for their lives, which meant that they moved on down to the next city. Hey, we'll just keep working here and see what happens. Um, so they went on to Iconium, and it says that they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Hey, it's working. We'll just keep going until it doesn't work anymore. So they just keep finding these Jewish synagogues, stepping in as a rabbi, proclaiming Jesus Christ, and the God-fearers and many of the devout Jews are coming to Christ. Hallelujah, amen? What a smart man. But again... The Jews were incensed, and they were literally driven out of this city after they were mistreated, and and they were threatened to be stoned. So they moved on to the next city. And so they moved on ultimately to Lystra, where it is said that, um, uh, it says here that Paul healed a man uh, who had never walked. He was crippled. He had been crippled from birth. Paul healed him, created this miracle, and all of a sudden, the people there in that city of Lystra thought to themselves, oh my goodness. And it says this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul was Hermes because he was the mouthpiece of the group. And so all of a sudden they're like, wow, these guys are gods. And so they get ready to start worshiping them and offering sacrifices. And Paul and Barnabas are besides themselves. They're ripping their clothes. No, 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 no. We are men like you. We are not gods. We're here merely to proclaim the true and living God. So the people were confused and upset. And along comes the Jews. These guys are liars. These are the guys who we've been warning you about. These are the guys you need to get rid of. And so actually in this situation, Paul was stoned at Lystra, dragged out of the city as though he were dead. I actually believe Paul did die in this stoning. And I think you would find a correlation to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he refers to a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure, who went up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. But the way Paul was carried out of the city as though dead, and the way he sprang right back to his feet and walked back into that city, there's something divine going on there. So I don't know. But so what happens is they made the, the, the circuit here back, and it says they were confirming the people who had come to Christ, encouraging them to stand strong in the faith this is the group of people that this letter the book of galatians was written to let me just say a few things about this group they are a mixed group of jews and gentiles they received the message of the gospel of grace clearly as paul had proclaimed it they all had come out of a background basically of adherence to the old testament law and they were under great pressure to compromise the message of grace with law They were also a very, very fickled people, a very fickled people. Uh, It is said that the Caesars, attesting to the people who lived in Gaul, uh, the infirmity of the Gauls is they are fickled in the resolve, fond of change, and therefore are not to be trusted. Uh, That plays out a role in this book because they get pressured from one side, they give in. They get pressured from another, they want to give in. So they seem to be very fickled in their minds. They have a hard time standing strong. Um, But Paul loved them. Paul deeply, deeply loved these people. So there we have it. This is the man. This was his mission. And let me just mention quickly the message of grace. What made Paul so unique is this. 
He wasn't calling people to come under the law. He wasn't calling people to put faith in Moses. He wasn't calling people to continue in the ways of the Old Testament. What he was basically saying is a new day has arrived. What I'm going to share with you is radically new, and it has no real connection to what has gone before. And this new thing is the grace of God found in Jesus Christ alone. Grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor and blessing from God found in Jesus Christ. It is a gift for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. It is a gift. Grace is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. True salvation is found by embracing Jesus. And in that embrace, we are given the complete forgiveness of all our sin, are made right with God. That is grace. There are a group of people that were incensed that Paul taught this way. And they were, and here are the, pro, the antagonists to our protagonist, Paul. Here is the antagonist. Let me introduce you to the people that Paul has had to fight against all this time and continues to in this letter. They are known as the Judaizers. These are the people Paul referred to in chapter 1 and verse 7 when he said, there are some people who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus. And the way they wanted to distort it is this, fine, believe in Jesus, fine, put faith in Jesus, but don't think for one minute that you can be right with God without putting yourself back under the law and keeping the 613 commandments. Don't think that you can be right with God without keeping the 10 commandments. Don't think you can be right with God by simply trusting in Jesus. You must also ultimately become Jewish if you're going to ultimately be pleasing to God. And so their, their, their teaching was simply this. You must place yourself under the commands of Moses and you must evidence it through the sign of circumcision. Their goal was to shackle people back to the Old Covenant, to shackle people back to the Old Testament law. Paul reserved the sharpest words you will find anywhere in Scripture for these people, these nemesises of his, because the gospel of grace was being threatened. I want you to notice how Paul referred to these people. He said this in chapter 1 and verse 9, if, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be what? What? The idea is to be a curse. The idea is to be accursed before God. The idea is basically this. Let them be damned. In a modern vernacular is, let them go to hell. That's strong. That's strong language. Paul was incensed at these people because they were taking the message of grace and they were clouding it and losing it in the, in the law. And he would not have any part of that. So he was being very, very strong here with them. This was damnable in his mind. In fact, he's basically said this. If you are so interested in having everybody be circumcised, I just want to encourage you. Don't just stop at the beginning. Finish the job. I wish those of you who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. Can you say that in church? Uh, I'm afraid it's in the text. Uh, yeah, you can. Paul was angry. I am not going to let these people drag you back under the law and cloud Christianity and the church with Old Testament Judaism. It doesn't work like that. And so all these strong words have been left for these adversaries, and we're going to watch it play out over the next number of weeks together. But basically, Paul wrote this letter to, to contend with them and to persuade the people in the churches that he had won to Jesus to side with grace. And so this is how the letter plays out. And we'll watch this play out over the next number of weeks together. It begins with a personal appeal in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 21, through the book of uh, chapter 2. He said this, my gospel is the gospel of grace. Basically defending his apostleship and the message of grace that he brought. And so my gospel is the gospel of grace. We then move into the theological appeal. It is experienced by faith and not obedience to the law. And that gives way to the practical appeal. And it sets us free to serve others. We're going to be taking this apart over the next number of weeks together. the law, rules, and regulations, whether it be the Mosaic law or somebody else's idea of what is right and wrong for you all the time, in order to be right with God, you must do these list of things, whoever makes up these rules. 
What happens when you come under that and you're not truly free as Christ has set you free is this. You spend all your time focusing on the rules. God, did I do that right? God, did I do this right? God, are you mad with me? God, am I okay with you? God, are we good? God, God, help. And it's all about me. The rules are ultimately all about me. I appreciate what Matt said last week. When we get into this mode, it's all about me. And what it does is it binds us in selfishness. But because Christ has broken those bonds free and made us right before God the Father through his sacrifice alone, our hands are now free to actually live out the message of God's grace and love towards others. This is the beauty of this message. It's not just that your sins have been forgiven, but he'll actually break the hold of self in your life and make you an extension of his grace in other people's lives. And so the book basically summarizes this way. The conclusion is, Christ and nothing else is to be the point of our boasting in this life. And so there you have it. Um, That is the man. This is his mission. This is his message. And he did it all for the glory of God. Amen? I just want to leave you with a few practical thoughts as we get ready to kind of walk our way through this book in the next number of weeks. Uh, Number one, uh, I want to encourage you to read or slash listen to the entire book of Galatians this week. Again, six chapters, 149 verses, about uh, 20 minutes if you read at a very slow, uh, cautious pace. So uh, I want to encourage you to do that. Or I want to encourage you to get this application if you don't have it. This Bible app is amazing. It's called YouVersion. If you were to log into it, you can get it for a smartphone, a tablet, or your computer. And it will let you listen through each of these books, too. They have wonderful, uh, uh, it's a great, great uh, tool. I highly want to encourage you to do that. So do me a favor this week. Listen through the, or write, read through the entire book of Galatians, and we'll hit the ground running next week. Secondly, I want to encourage you throughout this series to be asking God, am I truly in Christ? You know, the Bible does say this. We are to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And that's not an unhealthy thing to do. That's actually a good thing to do. It's a biblical concept. Do I really get grace? Have I really got grace? And do I really give grace in my life? And so I want that to be a challenge to our own hearts as we think our way through this series. And then lastly, we are moving into the summer season. That means lots of vacations and time away. But I would love for you to plan, to plan to come weekly as your schedule will ultimately allow, and to bring at least one unchurched friend with you to this series. This is a series about freedom. Everybody needs that. And so I pray that maybe you will be praying about who you will be thinking about inviting to this series in the coming weeks. Freedom in Christ to love others. Next week, there is only one gospel. We're going to be looking in that together as we begin our journey into the meat of this book. I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, I'd like to have those guys lift the screen. We have a baptism to do, okay? Let's pray together. Father God, uh, thank you for preserving this letter of liberty, this uh, emancipation proclamation for us to have today. I ask, Father, that you would help us to read it, to understand it, and to 